Hello and welcome to Main Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is Abigail Favale. She's a professor at the McGrath Institute for Church Life at Notre Dame University in the States and the author most recently of The Genesis of Gender, A Christian Theory. We spoke about the role of uh, gender in the in the Genesis narrative. We spoke about Abigail's uh, conversion to Catholicism and in the extended part we talked about her views on contraception and abortion from a Catholic feminist perspective and we spoke about the demise of women's studies now more commonly known as gender or gender and sexuality studies. As always you can find the extended version of this podcast on my substack louiseperry.substack.com along with bonus episodes and the MMM chat community. Enjoy. So, Abby, it seems uh, to make sense to start um, in the beginning with your opening chapter in the Genesis Agenda on um, <laughs> on Genesis and specifically on um, the, the the pre-existing creation myths that I had I had no knowledge of and which are so startlingly different from Genesis in really important gendered ways. So, could you start by explaining? Um, the context, the historical context that Genesis came out of in terms of some of these pre-existing myths. Sure. So in the in that chapter, I talk about the Babylonian creation narrative, which is the Enuma Elish. And Genesis 1, so there are two creation accounts in Genesis, right? So there's Genesis 1, and then there's Genesis 2 and 3. But in Genesis 1, which scholars think was written later and during the Babylonian exile, so when... Um, the Israelites or when the Israel people were actually captive in Babylon. So they would have very much known the cosmology of Babylon. Um, is So the, the theory is that Genesis 1 is kind of written against the backdrop, almost as like a response or even an attempt to demythologize um, the creation narrative and to assert a different account. So the Enuma Elish is like, it's really trippy. It's, it's a wild ride. Um, so it's centered around the creator god Marduk. So he's the one who eventually creates the universe as we know it. But what's interesting is that it starts out way before Marduk because we have to get his origin story. So it starts out actually with these two kind of primordial divine principles, Apsu and Tiamat, who are these water deities, one's salt water, one's fresh water. And they mingle their waters together to have other progeny. Um, and then eventually, after several generations, one of those progeny, Marduk, rises up and um, Apsu's dead by that point. But then there's this cosmic battle between Tiamat, the kind of divine feminine, and Marduk. And they create all kinds of demons and they have a fight. And basically, he kills her by harnessing the winds and blowing them into her body. She's basically like a sea monster at this point. So he kind of blows her up like a balloon and then pops her essentially. So all of this is very dramatic and the world does not yet exist. <laughs> okay. So um, it's only after her death that he's like, oh, wow, look at this corpse. Like, what should I do with this? Um, and it's only after this act of destruction that he begins to create, right? So in the Enuma Elish, destruction comes before creation. Um, so he makes the universe out of her corpse. He like splits her like a fish. And then he kind of makes the dome of the heavens and of the earth. And um, 
and she had a consort, this other guy named Kingu. And so he kills Kingu. And then out of Kingu's blood, he's like, well, I kind of need a race of slaves to feed me and offer me sacrifices. So I'll make these, um, these humans. And so the human beings are like an afterthought, basically, um, way down the line. And then the, the Enuma Elish ends with like this, like all the names of Marduk and how awesome he is and how he'll be worshipped forever. So um, that sounds so different from Genesis, right? But the reason we, yeah, the reason we think these are connected is that, um, first of all, there's a linguistic connection. Like, so when Genesis 1 starts out and talks about the spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters or the deep, right? Well, the word there is teom, which is a cognate of the Akkadian Tiamat. So it's immediately drawing up this imagery that would be very familiar of this kind of watery chaos. But here it's not personified. It's just the chaos, the emptiness that the creator God, who has no origin story, creates the world out of, right? So there's this kind of connection between them. Um, but there's a very different dynamic between the masculine and the feminine in the Enuma Elish and then in um, in Genesis. And there isn't the kind of, the thing that's really striking about this older Babylonian myth is the violence of it. The, the mm-hmm. yes, I mean, the, I'm sure you're familiar um, with the uh, old radical feminist British magazine, or maybe socialist feminist, but regardless, second wave feminist magazine, Spare Rib. Um, yeah, and the name yeah. obviously yep. is a reference to Genesis and, and that, that sense of... Um, I guess women being secondary, women being an afterthought in the Christian creation myth, um, and well, at Judeo-Christian creation myth. Um, but yeah, it, it's. Uh, I mean, if you look at its um, historical alternatives, it actually um, looks much different, right? Yeah. Well, it's unfortunate because then you know, subsequently we have all these centuries of terrible interpretations of Genesis, like Milton, for example, in Paradise Lost. Right. I think that that becomes almost that like shapes what becomes a typical Protestant understanding of Genesis, which is very much to read a a quite strict hierarchy and to see the female as kind of derivative or secondary to the male, um, which if you look at the text is actually not there. Um, So one of the things that I, in the book, what I'm trying to do in some ways is to like defamiliarize Genesis because everyone in the West is too familiar with it. And they've often heard these kind of hackneyed interpretations of, you know, Eve and Adam, these kind of cartoonish um, images float up. But what's actually being presented is is pretty revolutionary in its time, but I would say even now. Uh, but when you compare the Genesis creation accounts, especially Genesis 2, you'll notice that Genesis is weirdly preoccupied with sexual difference. So in the Enuma Elish, I didn't even mention, it mentions creating humans, but it doesn't even mention male and female. So the sexual differentiation of humans is not even worthy of comment. Um, Whereas in the Genesis narrative, that's the culmination of God's creative action. It's not the creation of human beings. It's actually the sexual differentiation of human beings. And that also contrasts, like I draw on some Plato, um, like in the Timaeus, and this isn't strictly a mythology, right? This is a philosophical dialogue. But there is this mythology that's presented in the Timaeus um, where um, he, women basically come into existence because they're, they're non-virtuous men who are reborn as women. Um, and this is kind of a mythical or mythological way of, of illustrating Plato's idea that 
this great hierarchy of being so that any difference will indicate some like either closer or further proximity to the divine, to the one, to the good, the source of all goodness. And so because men and women are different, one must be better. One must be more divine than the other, right? That's kind of the platonic reasoning. But in Genesis, it's like, it's about two-ness, right? So man and woman are differentiated. There's this kind of neuter created earthling that's initially created by God. And God's like, eh, something's wrong here. Um, but it's only when that being is differentiated into male and female that the work of creation is complete, right? So it's actually the climax. Um, and there's no hierarchy present until we get to the fall, which is why I think the, the sometimes the Milton or Protestant um, interpretations that try to read a strict hierarchy pre-fall um, are, are not really paying attention to the text. But is there a hierarchy post-fall? So, yeah, so in Genesis 3, so this is after, right, they eat the fruit, and then immediately they recognize their nakedness and they hide from each other. So the immediate consequence of the fall is that this dynamic of harmony and communion is kind of twisted. They twist away from each other um, into shame. And then one of the consequences when God comes in and is like, oh, geez, what did you do? Um, he... He gives three consequences. And sometimes these are read as punishments, but I think they're more descriptive than prescriptive, if that makes sense. Um, that because this original harmony is now corrupted um, and twisted and uh, flawed in some way, there are repercussions. And those repercussions are gendered, right? They're different for each sex. So there's like a... There's a symmetrical consequence, but then the, well, the consequences themselves are asymmetrical, right? Even though both have burdens. So one of the lines is, he tells the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, right? And that's the first time we get a hint of hierarchy and domination between the sexes. So it's only when there's like a falling away from the original intention, right? So that's already like a consequence. This is not the ideal. This is not how things are supposed to be. Right. And then there's a description of the woman having pain in childbirth and also the man who will have to like kind of wrestle with the earth. Right. So there's basically imagery of disruption between within the human being. So between like with the body, like the body becomes this kind of burdensome thing. And then there's also imagery of wrestling with the earth and then also men and women wrestling with each other. But it's interesting to think about. Um, I mean, there's so, I mean, one of the things I love about Genesis is like, there's one line and you could, you could talk for hours about that one line. Like your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Like this dynamic of like the temptation for women after the fall becomes this like self erasure. It becomes this, you know, losing themselves in um, the desire for a man. And then for men, the temptation becomes domination, right? To, to totally kind of subsume or dominate the woman so that she loses herself, right? Which, you know, I think is kind of happens, <laughs> you know? I've, I've seen that happen. I've experienced that, right? Like it's, you can look around the world and see how, how that is, is a dynamic mm. that plays out. It shows a very keen understanding of what humans are like. Yeah, yeah. Have you, um, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, 
mention two evolutionary psychology related things, which may seem strange in the context of a textual analysis of Genesis. But um, the first is I've always thought that the, um, you know, it is true in a sense that our, our agonies in childbirth are a consequence of our humanness because our agonies in childbirth are a consequence of us being bipedal that when we stood up and then had use of our hands um, for the first time, it, 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 it necessitated a narrowing of the hips. Also combined with having these enormous heads full of language and so on, right? So the enormous mm-hmm. head plus the bipedal um, narrow hips is basically what makes our childbirth so excruciating and dangerous compared with other, other similar animals. Um, so there is actually some truth, you know, to the idea of us knowing good and evil, to us having the capacity for um, language and having our kind of naughty hands um, has actually made childbirth painful. So there's a, some sort of like very literal truth to it, which I always find very sort of horribly poetic. The other thing is, are you familiar with this idea of um, snakes having been really important in the development of human language? No, do tell. So um, one of the things that humans can do, which other animals don't do, is that we don't just um, point at things um, to say we want them. You know, like how little children will point at something to say they want it. Like that's a basic thing. Other other um, primates do that. But one of the things that we do, um, which is unique to us, is we will point at things in order to alert other people to them. I can't remember the name of it, but there's a, a particular... I think declarative pointing, I think is maybe the term that's used. And um, the theory goes that the reason we started doing declarative pointing, which is a very important step on the way towards more sophisticated language and communication, is to tell other um, hominids about snakes. Because that's an an important reason. Do you know why, why snakes? Yeah, but why snakes in particular? Why not? Because... Uh, because snakes are small and sneaky, but also obviously mm, venomous, and and are. particularly at you know at like twilight, for instance, is a particularly dangerous time of day for snake bites. Um, and venomous snakes are 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 coexisting with our early hominid ancestors. So wanting to warn others about the presence of a snake is a, is is um offers a you know selection pressure. And so, yeah, again, you know, I mean, it's very little minded, obviously, and doesn't have the the psychological complexity of Genesis. But like, I, I always find those two those two facts really interesting. Maiden Mother Matriarch is brought to you by Keeper, the world's most advanced matchmaking solution. Now, many of you will know that I'm normally extremely suspicious of dating apps like Tinder and Bumble, which tend to produce repeat customers who must endure endless, miserable hookups and short-term relationships without ever finding a spouse. Well, Keeper is a completely different kind of service. Its algorithm prioritises immediate attraction, but also, crucially, long-term compatibility, because forever is the goal. Everyone in the Keeper matchmaking pool is there because they want to find a spouse. Using psychometric tests like Big Five, IQ and Masculine Feminine Polarity, Keeper can accurately predict who you're going to have the strongest chemistry with. 
The platform only gives you a match if you are an exact fit psychometrically and if the match offers everything that you've told Keeper you're looking for in a partner. It won't waste your time with only good enough matches like other dating apps and matchmaking services will. So find your Keeper at Keeper.ai. That's K-E-E-P-E-R dot A-I. That's, I mean, that's really fascinating because language is also so deeply important in both creation accounts, right? So you have in Genesis 1, divine language. So divine language is what creates, like brings order out of nothingness. Um, and then human language is, is what's, what's kind of featured in uh, Genesis 2. And so the first words that a human being says in scripture is when the man first sees the woman. And it's this beautiful cry of wonder, right? Like at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. You know, this being has gone through this arduous parade of animals where God is like, ah, oh, here, maybe this gopher will be a good counterpart for you. And But there's nothing there that can that he can have true communion with, right? Until he sees the woman. And so then um, you have this description of God creating these beings, bringing them to this earthling, basically, this Adam, this soil, being of the soil. And then the Adam names them, right? So there's this relationship of language to reality. So God creates, God makes reality. But then human language is a response, like a linguistic response to what is real. And that naming, we can tell once we see his words that are actually written out in response to the woman, that the name kind of corresponds to, it's an articulation of the nature of the thing he's looking at, right? So he names, he says, Isha, which is female or woman. And he names himself in that moment too, Ish. Um, so in that language, which it, it still works in English, like woman, man, you see it express, express both similarity and difference, right? So basically what he's saying is at last, this being that is so like me, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, that I can have communion, but yet also different, right? She is unlike me. She is, you know, our difference is asymmetrical. And that name, what he names himself and what he names her expresses that, that sameness and difference, that tension that Genesis holds which I think is that's the tension that we lose. Like any, any theory of gender, I think, goes off the rails when it loses that tension between sameness mm -hmm. and difference. You mentioned the um, um, Milton's analysis of Genesis and the Protestant analysis of Genesis, um, setting it up in contrast, I'm imagining, to the, the Catholic or Orthodox analysis of Genesis. Where, where, where does the Protestant analysis differ, particularly in, in relation to this gender question? So I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, right? I mean, there's all kinds of different Protestants. Um, so that said, I think there are a lot of different Protestant interpretations, some of which would probably align more with a Catholic reading. Um, but so I grew up as an evangelical Protestant, and I, um, I mostly encountered interpretations that read Genesis 3 as prescriptive. So in other words, God was kind of declaring from now on, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So that verse was kind of plucked out of the whole narrative 
as as almost this this norm that should be followed. And it was actually kind of presented as an ideal rather than, which the text quite explicitly says, a corruption of the ideal. Um, and so I think it lent itself then to more of a an understanding of of hierarchy between men and women, which in the kind of Protestantism that I grew up in was was very much affirmed and kind of held pretty pretty strictly. Um, now Milton Milton's interesting because he, and I, I will say not to rag on Milton, I actually love Paradise Lost. I think it's beautiful. Um, but his his understanding of Eve, she's kind of just like this dumb, pretty child, basically. So the reason he kind of gives this interpretation that the reason um, this that the devil goes to her first is because she's the weak one, right? She's the one that's going to be easy to trick. Um, and whereas I've I've seen in Catholic commenters, for example, like Edith Stein, where she says that the reason actually is that. Because the pro, the Catholic is going to be reading ahead toward Mary, so in both instances, both with Eve and Mary, a woman's ascent completely reshapes the trajectory of humankind. So the devil actually goes to the woman because of her influence, because she has the capacity to kind of reshape the direction of history and the direction of humanity. So that's a very different reading from Milton, right, where he's basically like he, you know, Satan went for the easy target. Um, but there's so there's been a pretty big tradition, especially through the Middle Ages, with this debate called the Querelle de Femmes, you know, which is like the the dispute of women, the dispute over women, woman question, and a lot of that had to do with the interpretation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the woman question, right? So we're having a yeah. Querelle de Femmes now, like the Querelle de Femmes 2024, <laughs> 2023, whatever year it is. Um, sorry, I mostly live in Texas. I don't even really know what the year, what year it is, but. As part of this Corel de Femme, there was a lot of wrangling about Genesis. Um, and one of my favorite figures in that is Christine de Pizan. So she's just an amazing person to know. Um, so she was a single mother, a widow. Yeah, widow. And she had four kids. And she's living in like, 15th century France, kind of right on the cusp of the turn from the medieval to, to Renaissance. And she's probably the first woman writer who, who makes a living writing. Like she, that's how she supports her families by writing. So she participates in this dispute. Um, but you mentioned the spare rib imagery. Well, one of the things that, um, that she argues is that actually that imagery shows the equal dignity of the sexes because she's not, she's not made out of his head to be his overseer. She's not made out of his feet to be his servant, but she's made out of his side to be a counterpart, right? So, um, so disputes about how to interpret Genesis have for centuries been tied to what kinds of roles um, were being offered to women in, in Western society. Yeah, yeah, made out of his bones. It is, it is amazing, isn't it? Um, I mean, the, the, I haven't read um, either, um, or Paradise Lost for an extremely long time because I only read them at university. Um, but the so so the even the kind of Protestant or, 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 or Milton's imagining she's she's susceptible, she's childlike, but there is still this kind of loving relationship between, including at the end. I mean, oh, yeah. the final lines, the the um, hand in hand, wandering steps and wandering steps and slow lines at the end. Right, there is a certain kind of equality there. 
but but this idea of 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 God's curse on Eve being prescriptive is so fascinating because yes, as you say, if anything, the way we could read it is as saying that this is the imperfect outcome of the fall, and the perfect mm-hmm. outcome actually would be would be the true equality and the and the that kind of physical enmeshment of beforehand. I mean, it's almost opposite meanings in a way, because one is presented as something gone wrong. And whereas the other interpretation says, no, this is the way it's supposed to be. So I think how that, how that bit is, is interpreted is, is, and has been enormously, Mm. I think, influential. Although it tends to be, I don't know, sometimes I think, I don't know, I don't want to like rag on Protestantism. (laughs) I feel bad. Um, But I will say, I think in the, in the, um, in the strand, I want to be very specific about this, the kind of kind of evangelical mm-hmm. Protestantism I grew up in. It was sort of like you, you kind of had your presuppositions and then you brought them into the text and then you, you kind of found the verse that fit your presuppositions, right? So I think forms of Christianity that were already more hierarchical in terms of the sexes just were like, oh, that's what this verse says, right? And I think there's also a kind of hermeneutics in um, the like sola scriptura, where it's where everything depends on what the Bible says, and there there can be a way. Like the way I learned to read the Bible growing up was very much verse by verse, right? So I didn't, or you would hear like a sermon about a chapter, maybe. So it wasn't until actually um, I started teaching the Bible in literature and kind of great books context, when we would read a whole book in one sitting, like for one class, like all of Genesis. And that was, it was amazing because I was like, this totally changes the reading experience to actually read the text as a whole and not just kind of zoom in and pluck out a verse or a chapter. Um, so, because there's an arc, right? So this, this has to be read in the, in the narrative mm-hmm. arc. Well, that's why making the, that's why translating the Bible into English is such a big deal, right? Because because yes, otherwise you all you do the yeah. only exposure you have to the Bible is through these snippets that you hear in church, which is as I agree, completely different. Right, or you might not even if you were if you weren't hearing them in your own language, then your exposure to scripture might be the images, right? Which is another reason why art and stained glass and you know that's that's what the role the role that art and those mm-hmm. images played was for and um, was to to um, introduce people into scripture, which I think is so fascinating, right? I mean, if you compare that, like if you if you think about that as a kind of catechesis, like a catechesis of image versus a catechesis of, you know, read, like literal reading of a text, right? And how that would shape your theology, right? In terms of a theology that's so much more incarnational and embodied versus one that's just mm-hmm. much more legalistic, right? Like this is what the text says. These are what the rules are. And that really ex- honestly encapsulates what I have experienced in the tradition I grew up and then now as a Catholic, that there's, and there's so much more of a sense of the, the kind of embodied incarnational, um, the embodied and the incarnational in worship, in theology, um, than in, in mm. what I grew up with. It seems like a good moment to do a little bit of biographical biographical background so so you grew up in um evangelical protestant tradition in um 
in Utah, is that right? Or, or part of your childhood was in Utah? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Utah, that was where I grew up as a child. And then high school was in eastern Idaho, but it's the Mormon belt um, of the United States. Yeah. So it was sometimes I describe it as like a Russian nesting doll of religious conservatism, you know, like an evangelical bubble inside a Mormon bubble. Um, that was my my upbringing. Um, and then you uh, you you lost. Well, you had periods of 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 sort of straying from your faith, as is very typical for teenagers. Um, but you you end up doing this unusual thing of going and studying women's studies. Was it women's studies or gender studies? What do they call it? So it was. It was in that time where it was both, right? I mean, it's it's fascinating to see that like women's studies, then women's and gender studies, then gender studies. So my master's degree at St. Andrews was titled at the time, it might still be called this, I don't know, Women Writing and Gender. Okay. I mean, yeah, there's a yeah, there's a whole story in that, isn't there? The way that the word woman has mm-hmm. slipped off there. It was when I did women's studies, it was still called women's studies um, at Oxford, but I think that since it's now been renamed to gender studies or maybe even gender. Or maybe even gender, gender sexuality studies, yep. studies, the most cursed option. Yeah, I mean, this is like kind <laughs> of a tangent, but I on that on that point, um, a couple of years ago, my husband was in a uh, like a psychotherapy master's, and he had to take a kind of social justice sort of course, and he had this massive reader for that course that was a bunch of selections of primary text and anthology. So I looked at it. I was like, oh, what are the anthologies like these days? You know, and it had like whole sections on race, section on class. And then I was like, oh, I wonder what it says in the kind of feminism and women section. And it was, it, there was no section on women. It was all gender mm-hmm. and sexuality. So I think there were maybe of the 20, I'm not even kidding you, like of the 20 selections, there were maybe like two that were actually about women. And the vast majority of them were about um, sexuality and then transgender identities. So I was, I was honestly shocked to see it. I was like, wow, it, this has completely swallowed, you know, any any kind of discourse that's really focused on on women. What I found when I was at university, um, which is a little while ago now, and it may have changed, is that um, you could still talk about women and use women in course titles if it was in um, in the history department, because it, it doesn't really make sense. Well, it, I mean, it absolutely doesn't make sense at all, but also even, even within the kind of contemporary university culture, people recognise that it didn't really make sense to talk about to, to use words other than woman if you're talking about, you know, any period before the 20th century latest. Um, so when you were, so this is when you were an undergrad? No, I did a master's in women's studies. I um, did my, yeah, my undergraduate was in, in anthropology, okay. um, which was even worse. So can I ask you about your women's study? I, I'm really curious, um, like what kinds of stuff did you read? And you said it was still okay to to kind of refer to or assume that a woman is female, but only in specific disciplines. Or I, yeah, I'm I'm curious about what it was like. So at Oxford, the Women's Studies Masters is an interdisciplinary master's. So you take there's so there isn't actually a department of women's studies. What you do is you take a, like a patchwork of courses from different departments. Um, plus one feminism in philosophy course, which is compulsory. So the feminism in philosophy course was very gender woo. 
but and basically didn't include any second wave but I actually basically did a history master's in that all the courses I took were in the history department and I did my dissertation in the history department so I because I was focusing on the history of women's medicine no one expected me to say crazy things I mean that makes sense right because the discipline of history has to be connected to material conditions right so it can't go totally off and you need to be echoing the terminology used by the sources that you're using as well yes most of the time right I remember this too like I still remember actually doing a as an undergrad I did a semester at Oxford and I I remember writing a paper on Christina Pizan actually I was doing a module on medieval women and um I was writing about whether or not, at first I wanted to write about whether or not Christine de Pizan could be considered feminist. And my memory tutor was like, oh, that's an, an anachronistic. You can't use the term feminist, you know? So we kind of were like, okay, what about proto-feminism? And then I had to define that or something. But it's so interesting to me that like that, that was, you know, an academic standard that you can't just project the concepts of our time into history. Although I think that 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 is completely oh, what yeah. happens now. Have you haven't you heard Joan of Arc is trans, along with a whole yes. <laughs> list of people? Yes, yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, unconventional women are no longer women, right? So, and yeah, and studying. I mean, the the book that the Genesis of Gender book, in in part, is is kind of telling of how the concept of gender unfolded, and so it it's very clear to me that. And this is not me making any value judgments at all, but just that the the current concepts we have around gender and transition and transgender, that these are, are modern concepts that are so deeply embedded in technological advances that it really makes absolutely no sense to talk about them prior to the 20th century. So any anytime you kind of project trans back into history, the the meaning expands to basically include any kind of gender nonconformity, right? But then you end up with this strange reading of history where unconventional men and women are read as no longer men and women, right? So it's, anyway, one of my pet peeves. I have Joan on my my arm here and she gets unhappy. I was going to say, I, was gonna, I thought, is it too personal to ask you to, to whip your Joan? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's very horcrux. She's not non-binary. It's a particularly lovely um, image of her, I think. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. I hang it on my wall too, actually. Like it's, it captures this, like, she is so, it's this strength, but it's like this collected strength, right? She's just rooted and unafraid. It's not this like, you know, superhero, I'm going to bash your head in, but it's like, I don't know. It has this like deep peace and conviction about it that I, that's what I, that's what I desire. Um, so let's go back to your um, uh, slightly unconventional academic background. So you're you're mm-hmm. you're studying, um, let's call it women's studies, but you are coming from a very conservative Christian background, as you say, and a kind of bringing Christian priors, I guess, to this study. I think I also I think you also say in the book that you um, mm-hmm. you did the very bizarre thing of getting engaged. <laughs> yes. Well, actually was married. I like got married and then, um, you know, the next month we moved to Scotland and I started a women's studies master's. And so they were, you know, I was 23, I think at the time. And they mm. were like, what, you're married, like heterosexually married, you know, it was kind of like, and you're in a women's studies program. 
anyway, so it was, but it was all in good fun, right? But they cut, they had a nickname for me called the <laughs> queer wife because it was actually more queer to be hetero married <laughs> in that program. Um, so I, I was engaged when I did women's studies and I got married like the summer following aged, I was 24 engaged and then 25 when I got married. So not, not a million miles off. And it was really weird. Not too far. It was really weird mm-hmm. behavior. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very um, countercultural. Yep. Yeah. I would say by the time I was doing, so basically I went to college and I discovered feminism. And then to put it simplistically, I think feminism became my religion. So I don't think by the time I went to graduate school, I was not working with Christian priors. I would say I was coming from much more of a perspective that I usually just call postmodern because it's, it's kind of an easy term, even though sometimes it's applied too broadly. But um, so I still was interested in Christianity and Christian theology. Like I ended up writing my dissertation on how contemporary women writers were engaging with theological concepts and revising them in fiction. Um, and that was very interesting to me, but it was like, it was like Christianity as a, as a story, right? Christianity as this cultural artifact. So I didn't have, I wasn't practicing. There was, you know, I had no, um, specific orthodoxy or orthopraxy, I would say, in that time in my life, even though I was still like just fascinated by the Christian story, um, but I was no longer practicing. And I was very much into like French feminist theory. I don't know if you've ever, I don't know if you read any French feminist theory in that feminism yeah, and philosophy. Yeah, I coerced into doing it, but yeah, I did. <laughs> the one thing I like, the one thing I love about French feminist theory is that they are super into the body. And they take pregnancy very seriously as an object of study. They do. They do. Um, Because I I focused on Lucia Rigore, um, the feminist philosopher. That's who I, she was the primary theoretical lens of my uh, dissertation. Um, And I always, (laughs) I kept having to like do these kind of, contorting moves to make sure that I wasn't coming off as an essentialist because I very much wanted to like take seriously the idea of sexual difference. But then because you're not, you know, any whiff of essentialism in, and just basically by essentialism, I mean the idea that men and women are different by nature in some way, not just socially. Um, but the thing I like about the French feminists is like, eh, they're not that worried about it. Right. Um, anyway, they're kind of fun. I still have a little sweet spot for them. I think essentialism used to be used to mean kind of fairly the idea of there being essential psychological differences between men and women. And now it just means like knowing that penises are male. It's become, right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. Like it used to be, I think the reason second waivers critiqued essentialism Mm -hmm. was for a good reason. And that's because it was, they were critiquing this narrative that these socially shaped differences between men and women were then kind of read as natural and then imposed as ideals, right? So like, oh, women are less rational than men and that's why they shouldn't be educated. Or is it perhaps that they're not educated, therefore they appear to be less rational, right? So they're critiquing critiquing that. So I'm all for critiquing bad mm. essentialism. Um, yeah. But I felt, I guess I felt this pressure to like, I have to talk about difference, but also say, but men and women aren't actually different. Like it was this, there was kind of this like constant, you know, like tightrope I was having to walk. 
Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the challenge and what I think is actually true is that there are um, some very important average psychological differences between men and women, but they're not absolute differences. There are, there are, there are exceptions in every possible direction. Um, and people find it really hard to wrap their heads around that one for some reason. Yeah. I mean, you just have to, this is where there's this kind of threefold framework that I get from Edith Stein, who's a, one of my favorites. She's a Catholic philosopher, also martyred in Auschwitz and a saint. She's amazing. Um, but she, she talks about, when she writes about men and women, she talks about kind of three dimensions. There's the human level. So both men and women are fully human. So the full range of human capacities or potencies or virtues belong to both. But then there is this dimension of sexual difference. And here it is possible to talk in general about differences between the sexes. But then there's also the level of the individual person. So the individual woman might not be sex typical when it comes to certain personality traits or dispositions. But that doesn't mean we're not able to talk about general differences or typical differences, right? Um, so I, I'm, I'm always think, I'm thinking like if you... It's the trick is keeping those three things in play, um, common humanity, asymmetry, and then individual particularity, I guess. But you're right. People don't like people. It's And you mentioned this too. I remember you saying that of all the like kind of evocative chapter titles in your book, the one that got people the most riled up was men and women are different. I think is marriage right? is good. was possibly a more controversial one. Um, but yeah, men, but men and women are different. Definitely um, set people off some people. Yeah. Yes. I mean that, yeah, I mean the physical level differences obviously are not popular with um, a lot of academic feminism and trans activism. Um, but it, the psychological differences are tricky too. Um with rad with radical feminists and lots of other feminists, um, the factions is the factions are so um, endlessly complex and bitter. Um, because I guess it is. I mean, it is. A, uh, the, the, I fall down on the side of saying, look, I think these differences are real, and I don't think that we get anywhere by pretending that they're not. Um, and so I kind of hurled data as much as possible at readers in the hope of persuading them. But I do. I do take the point that historically the fact of psychological differences between men and women has been used to do things like exclude women from higher education on the basis of, of, of us having um, smaller brains and being intellectually childlike and so on. So there's like, there's very potent risks within, within all of this that maybe if we bring some of these ideas to, to light and seem to um, legitimize them, that it might be used against women's interests. Um, but I also think that I don't think we should tell lies because they're convenient <laughs> in general. Uh, yes, I would agree with that for sure. Okay. So you, so you are kind of interested in Christian theology as a student of gender studies, but at what point is it that you end up being drawn towards Catholicism? So there was a there was a phase when I was an undergrad. It actually was at when I said that semester at Oxford. That was this kind of turning point in a way. I was there, you know. You know, Oxford's this magical place. Um, I was going to um, a, a evening prayer at 
at the Anglican chapel, one of the Anglican chapels every evening. And, um, and I had some friends at the time who, a couple of friends who were becoming Catholic. And I remember thinking, oh, that seems so cool. Because so, what appealed to me about Catholicism actually was how bodily it was. Like you walk into a Catholic church and it's you're like bombarded with female bodies everywhere. And that's so different from the Christianity that I grew up in. You know, like we just didn't talk about women unless you were kind of telling them like where their, where their little box was that they were supposed to live in. Um, and But then I was like, oh, an all-male priesthood, that's a total deal breaker. So... I just kind of left it and went on into to French feminist land for a decade. Um, and then this is kind of, it's hard, it's hard to succinctly tell this story. It's just sort of weird. It's weird. But at the end of my twenties, a big catalyst I would say was becoming a mother for the first time. Um, so I think by then I would say I had become an ideologue when it came to feminism in the sense that it had become this like totalizing narrative through which I read kind of every interaction. Um, and so the thing about ideologies is that they tend to close down certain questions or avenues of exploration. Like there are just things you're no longer supposed to think or ask. But once I became a mother, it was like, there were like questions that I wanted to ask that hadn't, well, first of all, I was like, okay, femaleness is like a real thing, you know, to have your, your like female procreative potential activated in in its fullness is really kind of alarming and amazing, but also incredibly disruptive. And so that that I think disrupted some of my naive beliefs about all sex differences being mostly social constructs. But I think it also I had you know I had a son, and I think I became interested in what boys experience, you know, I had been so honed in on the narrative of, of women and girls and wanting to understand my identity as a woman. Um, but then when I had this like vulnerable little son, I wanted to know like, what would, what kind of burdens are put on boys by society. Right. So I think by, I think it just opened my world in a way where the, the, the feminist beliefs I had, which were maybe too simplistic in a way, or, or I think, I think they were doing too much work for me. I had basically all of my kind of meaning and values were derived from um, that kind of narrow worldview. And it just lost some of its explanatory power. Um, and then at the same time, I was kind of in this spiritual crisis because I kind of been on the fence with Christianity for so long where I was like, sort of still a Christian, but not really practicing. And I just kind of got to this like, well, like shit or get off the pot kind of moment, basically. Like either if I'm going to be Christian, like I need to be serious about it. Like I actually need to practice it in some way. I can't just like have this like club affiliation. And if I don't want to believe or practice it, then I just need to like walk away and move on with my life. And um, I, I have a friend who's a very um, uh, devout evangelical Christian and she um, says that she feels actually she has a greater affinity with Richard Dawkins, diehard atheist, than she does with the kind of um, woolly Anglicans who go to church a few times a year and kind of yes. say the lines and maybe get married in church. But she says, you know, look, if 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 it's kind of the C.S. Lewis thing, like mad battle God, like if you think Christ is God, that is the most consequential fact in the universe. It's not something you can be vaguely on the fence about. Mm -hmm. 
Exactly. Right. And so for me, what actually what pulled that, what pulled that point out was Flannery O'Connor. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she's an American writer, Catholic, amazing. Her stuff's amazing. But she writes about this anecdote where she, so she was Catholic in the American South, very Protestant, um, Protestant scene. And he would, she was at a dinner party with some Protestant friends. And one of them happened to say something like, oh, the Eucharist, it's such a beautiful symbol. And Flannery responds, well, if it's just a symbol, then to hell with it. And like, it was just that phrase, if it's just a symbol, then to hell with it, because that's how I viewed all of, create, all of Christianity was just a symbol. And I was kind of like, yeah, then to hell with it. Like, but I couldn't do that, you know? And so anyway, I think in that, in that, in that place of vulnerability, I just, I really abruptly became Catholic, like really abruptly. And then it wasn't, it wasn't, and I became Catholic, like with a lot of my feminist objections unresolved. I still was like, what's the deal with contraception, like male priesthood, abortion, and say, and then gay marriage was the hardest for me. Um, cause I had very progressive, um, views on marriage. Uh, so it was it was kind of the first two years of being Catholic when I just really good in a, in good faith wrestled with those things that I began to I think more deeply think like a Catholic. But it was quite a dizzying um, conversion, as they call it. Right? It was very very disorienting. Like my world turned upside down and inside out. Those are issues that um, I say as a non-Catholic that. Um that are a source of, of, of debate within Catholicism as well, right? Except that there are some hard, yep. there are some hard limits, but there's some, also some space for negotiation. Yeah. I mean, what I've learned as a Catholic is that all the kind of diversity that you see in Protestantism, you can find mm-hmm. it in Catholicism. It's just, it kind of remains, it's this one thing, right? It's, it's just not in this, like, it, it kind of, Sometimes you might have like a parish that's more of a progressive parish or more of a trad parish, right? But still, it's like one church. So instead of instead of like getting divorced over and over, they we just kind of stay and like fight about it. But the, you're right; the boundaries, but the boundaries are are clear, right? That there is, I guess, there is an authoritative um, line in in Catholicism that I do think kind of holds things together in a way that. Um, that there isn't in Protestantism. So you see more of this kind of fragmentation approach to different. Yeah. That's what I was um, thinking as you were speaking that I've, um, there are some elements of Catholicism that I find quite strange. Um, and when I've been to, to um, church with friends or whatever, I find quite disorientating the, the um, slightly, uh, I don't know what the word is without sounding pejorative. The, the the panoply of of rituals and saints days and which has a slightly superstitious pagan element to it you know the veneration of sites ancestor worship kind of is does kind of recall the the, the position mm-hmm. of saints all of this um combined with obviously the fierce hierarchy and male priests and all of this kind of stuff but the the thing that i've um reasoned over time is that those are the elements that are necessarily going to sustain a really lasting church right like if you are incorporating lots of things that people are instinctively drawn towards worshippers are drawn towards like the veneration of ancestors and of and of sacred sites and fixed hierarchies these are the kind of things that basically make a church durable over very many centuries 
Whereas Protestantism, as you say, has this kind of inherent instability because it defies those very, very old traditions and hierarchies. So all of which is to say, if you're going to be part of a church which is extremely old, you kind of have to take <laughs> that stuff with it because it's a necessary component of anything that can last that long. Right. I mean, there kind of has to be somebody at the helm in a way. Like there has to be kind of like a visible authority, even though, of course, it's like, you know, very complex and you don't, you know, sometimes very corrupt and dysfunctional. <laughs> that's one of the other things about becoming Catholic is, is sort of learning about the sort of well, that's human of institutions, isn't it? How it's yeah. exactly right. Like there's just as much like, you know, sin and corruption, you know, because the church is, is human, even though I of course think she's also um, divine and that in fact, probably the only way she could have lasted as long as she has is, is with some divine intervention, considering how corrupt things can get. But you're right. It is. I do think there, even while I can acknowledge like the dysfunction and the corruption, it has, it has held the thing together, you know, over, over 2000 years. Yeah. So, yeah, I think you just have to, I want to talk some more in the extended bit about, um, uh, abortion and contraception, which is something you've written about and obviously is very important in talking about um, Catholic feminism. Um, but first, this male priests thing, what, how, have you, how, have you, how have you wrapped your head around it <laughs> since becoming Catholic? Sure. Um, well, one thing I would say, I was coming from a Protestant context where, and I realize you still have priests in some Anglican um, churches, but I was coming from a Protestant context where you don't have priests anymore. You have pastors. And so the role of the pastor is very much a teaching role. There's no mass or Eucharist anymore. So the priest, in essence, is actually it's a sacrificial role, which you see it's an extension of kind of what the priest priestly function in the ancient world was. Like the priest's main role is to offer sacrifices. Like that's what a priest is about to do, is supposed to do. But in the tradition I grew up in, there was no longer a sense of the sacrifice of the mass. So it was all about teaching and preaching. And so if you if you grow up in a tradition that says no, you know, men only men can be ordained, that ends up being extended to only men can preach and teach. Right. So I think there was so when I came into Catholicism, I was kind of coming from that background where I sort of assumed that a male priesthood would would mean that women weren't really allowed in leadership positions, they weren't allowed to preach or teach or whatever. Um, which I have found is definitely not the case in my experience. Like, I'm not going to deny that there are, you know, pockets of, of places where, you know, with like really heightened clericalism and maybe where um, I know, you know, Catholicism is a global church and things are very complicated. So in my experience in American Catholicism, I have felt in some ways like almost asked to do too much as a woman, like in terms of, you know, formation and, um, and teaching and preaching. And like, like just this week, I spent a whole day at a diocese, you know, kind of three hours north with all their priests and I taught them the entire day. So it's like, even though it's like, they're, they're the priests and I'm not like, they're learning from me in a way. So there's a, in other words, like, I think the, the role of the priest is more narrow and specific in a way. Um, and there's a lot more room for women's influence. And I do think there's still more room for that to be developed. I think clericalism is a big problem because it expands the role of the priest 
maybe beyond what it should be. So that's one contextual thing. But the other, the thing that really changed my kind of heart, I guess, on the issue, if we think about how the main role of the priest is to offer the sacrifice of the mass. Well, in in the Catholic mass, it's almost like a liturgical drama, right? That's being staged. And again, we talked about this a little bit earlier about how much of a role images play. And so if you know what's going on in mass, you can actually see that there's almost this like, yeah, there's this like drama being staged with iconography. And so the bodies at play serve an iconographic function. So the priest has kind of a dual iconographic function in the mass. The first is to be priest, to represent Christ as the high priest who's offering his sacrifice of love on behalf of all of humankind. And then secondly, there's the bridegroom because the mass is also um, a nuptial banquet, right? There's this line in the liturgy about blessed are all those called to the wedding supper of the lamb, right? So, and this is, you know, it's like a very bodily imagery of the Eucharist, right? So there's the Eucharist and communion is this kind of consummation of Christ and the bride. Like it's, it's kind of a wedding feast. Like that's what's happening in the mass. So once I understood the role of symbol and how important the liturgical presentation of that symbolism was, it made sense to me why a priest would be male, because it's not about him being smarter or better. You know, he might be a terrible human being. I don't know. Um, but nonetheless, like he can serve as an icon of the bridegroom in a way that I can't as a woman, right? So there was also this, and this is something that I've just been hungry for my whole life. Like, I just, I want to, I want to be told that the female body is a good thing and it matters. You know, the body is a good thing and it matters. The male body is a good thing and it matters, right? And I think the tradition I grew up in was very denigrating of the body. I think our culture has now taken a, weird, a very sharp turn toward the denigration of the body. And so for me, like the Catholic mass where it's like, wow, our bodies are icons. Like our bodies point toward these divine realities where my body is an icon of all of humanity as God's bride, you know? And then the priest serves this as an icon of Christ who was also a human male and who was also the bridegroom. So I happen to love that symbolism and that imagery. And I, it's more important to me to preserve that imagery than to have this kind of like, you know, contemporary liberal, liberal egalitarian squabbling. But so for me, I like, I, I am very much interested in the conversation about how to expand the role and influence of women in the church. But for me, that's not about the priesthood. I think the priesthood should be like a sacramental office. Um, but there's so much room outside of that for women to be leaders, administrators, advisors, you know, and Pope Francis has been expanding the advisory role of women and the administrative role of women in very prominent places in the Vatican. So I think there's more room to expand in those directions. Um, and while preserving, you know, the, the, the riches, um, I think in the, the iconography of the church. Um, just to end the free section on um, a trivial and funny note, but related to what you were talking about there and the centrality of the body, I was just reminded of when I last took my um, my, my now two year old into a Catholic church, and he um, he one he walked around and he um, identified all the mummies and babies all over the wall, which, as you say, you don't you actually see an enormous number of images of of well one woman um, 
within um, Catholic churches, which you don't necessarily see elsewhere. Um, and two, he found this nativity scene, um, which showed um, the baby Jesus um, appearing to be kind of like nude, but nude below the waist with his, um, with his mother leaning over him. And he was convinced that this was baby Jesus having his nappy changed. Um, and I thought, yeah, you know what? That's actually a very important theological point. The baby Jesus being human did have his nappy changed. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I thought there is this painting. I wonder if it's the same one, but there's this famous painting where Mary's, Mary's kind of like leaning over and kind of like almost like surprised at baby Jesus. And he's kind of kicking there. And it always looks to me like it's a diaper change, like that maybe he's about to pee on it or something. Right. Yes. There's something very just like bodily, you know, about about all of um, about yeah. Catholicism. Yeah. Catholicism is very weirdly bodily in a way that. I yeah. think Let's talk about this more in a moment. Um, except you know the grim, the grimmer side potentially of um, of the, the 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 Catholic focus on the body in terms of abortion, but also in terms of just the whole the whole issue of reproduction and contraception and so on. Um, for everyone else, where can people get your books? Where can people find more of your work? Well, I've written. I've written three books. The first one was an academic book, which, you know, is pretty boring. So don't worry about that one. But um, I, if you're interested more, I guess, in my conversion story, and especially my wrestling with those feminist questions specifically, I have, I have a conversion memoir called Into the Deep, An Unlikely Catholic Conversion. And then most recently, I've written The Genesis of Gender, um, which is both an articulation of gender in kind of the Catholic cosmos, but it's also drawing on more my gender studies side. It's an account of the genealogy of the concept of gender and how it developed in the 20th century and has become what it is now. So if you're interested in that, um, um, that book might, might be appealing. All right. Thank you so much, Abby. Thank you so much for watching that episode of Men, Mother, Matriarch and for all of your support. It means an enormous amount for the growth of the show. If you want to hear bonus content, an extra 20, 30 minutes of conversation with the guest, maybe a little bit more personal, a little bit less filtered, then you can go to my Substack at louiseperry.substack.com where you can sign up for extended episodes and also bonus episodes. And you can also access our chat community. You can also support the show by subscribing on YouTube or subscribing wherever you get your podcasts and rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts is also really great for encouraging other people to give the show a try. Please also spread the word, tell people that you know who you think might like it to give it, to give it a shot. Um, the word of mouth effect is really valuable, so we'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening, watching and supporting what we're doing. <laughs>